0: Greetings dear listeners. Uh this is Jonah Goldberg and this is the second episode of uh The Remnant with I guess Jonah Goldberg and uh I have in the studio here my sort of uh producer type person. He's a communications guy here at the American Enterprise Institute expert on all things podcastery. And uh how did you think it went? I really enjoyed it. Uh Sass had some great stories. Uh uh-huh.
1: and uh yeah, it was it was the first one, so I'm look I'm
0: looking forward to what it turns into. Yeah, I guess I should tell people that your name is Michael Pratt. Um, <laughs> so it's weird. Uh, again, I I don't think this kind of thing came naturally, mm-hmm. comes naturally to me. Uh, I, a lot of people in the audience were very supportive, sympathetic. You know, I got a lot of great feedback, um, and i still haven't made up my mind about it. It feels it's it's weird though because we already did it right, and so I'm sort of committed. And you know, back in the old days when um, I did most of my drinking outside socially rather than uh, bitterly sitting at my, on my couch, um, uh, I used to live in Adams Morgan, and a friend of mine turned me on to this spicy Jamaican beef patty at 7-Eleven at 3 in the morning. And uh, for those of you who don't know, and I congratulate you on not knowing, they're absolutely delicious small pockets of, of bacterial death and meningitis, and they're horrible things, right? And it reminds
1: me of the Cuban sandwich I used to get at Trinity Deli outside Catholic University. Best Cuban sandwich in the city, but I don't know why that Yeah. the case. <laughs>
0: well, there was something special about this because it would soak up the extra booze in you because it was just so full of grease, right? And, um, you know, it would leak grease down your arm the same way... Uh, blood would leak down an arm of if you held it up a severed head, right? I mean, it was just disgusting, and um, I would always have this sort of existential panic about the first bite, right? Yeah. Um, because who knows what bacteria? In there. It's sort of like that Seinfeld where Lloyd Braun buys the um, the last hot dog that's been under the heat lamp since the silent era, and the mm-hmm. the, the concession guy is like, um, "Are you know Are you insane?" And um, but once you ate the first bite, you figure, okay. It's like drinking from a public fountain in in New Delhi, right? If I'm going to die from this, I'm going to die from this. You're committed, right? I've crossed the Rubicon. You've burnt your ships. We're a go. And so this is the second episode of the spicy Jamaican beef patty that is this podcast, and we'll see how it goes. Um, And so one of the things that uh, I got a lot of advice from different people, a lot of people telling me to um and ah less, and I should tell you that if I had control over that, I would... Um and ah less. It's just one of the natures of the beast. But that's actually kind of technically my
1: fault because we can edit some of that out. So that's one of the things we'll do for this one.
0: You're never supposed to reveal the magic that is podcasting, right? Um. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, and I, one of the guys I heard from was an old friend of mine, Dan Foster. Uh, used to be a longtime writer for National Review and he left a few years ago to pursue a whole different vocation. I think he's a professional weight guesser at some carnivals in in the South. Um, anyway, so he wrote me a long list. I'm not going to read you the whole thing. But um, he, he gave me a whole bunch of good bullet points, um, which are surprising from a guy who, who was a carny. Um, he said that uh, I would I'm reading from this him now. uh I would say, don't be afraid to back into politics. If you bring in people who are deep political thinkers, politics junkies, you can talk about whatever you want and you'll be naturally pulled to politics eventually, which I think is good advice and sort of what happened with sas And then I, uh, he really liked how Sass flipped the interview around and started asking me questions, which is something I, I would like more guests to do because, again, I want this to be a conversation and not a serial interview. But he then gave me this advice. He says, related to this... Your fans are obviously very interested in you as a dude, husband, dad, pop culture geek. So don't be afraid to talk about life, what grinds your gears, the last movie you saw, whatever. People will find it compelling. It will make them feel like they are your friends, like the canine updates in the G-File. And then he says, you know, I revered David Letterman growing up and the times he would interrupt his desk piece to share something that happened to him in the supermarket that morning or on his jog the day before. And they would crack me up. And then he said, you sound like you weigh 210 pounds. Anyway, um, so I, I kind of, you know, I want this to be sort of like the G-File. One of the reasons why the G-File works is a very subjective term, but um, it is popular among the people for whom the G-File is popular. <laughs> you know? And so there's a definite filter bias because I know there are a lot of people who think it's an exercise in juvenilia and, and sanctimony. But I want to do some of that here, and we're just, just so listeners know we're trying to figure out the format. You know, we're going to use Mike as my Robin Quivers, or maybe um, my research assistant Jack Butler. We'll let him out of the crate and let him do it. Um, but we just haven't figured any of that stuff out because, for weird logistical reasons, I just kind of fell into doing this last week, and I still haven't put in any enormous amount of planning into it. Um, but if you have any ideas of how, you know you want to start this thing by how was your weekend or you know, who do you want to kill today or any yeah. of those kinds of things, that's fine by me. Um, I will say that among the people I do want to kill pretty much every day yeah. um, is uh, there's a, one of the weirdest things about Washington, D.C., and I don't know if this is true in other cities. Maybe it is. Um, there are two types of people who have vast amounts of their self-esteem invested in asserting their rights as pedestrians. <laughs> um there are where i i live out in a pretty high end neighborhood in northwest dc and the people there are sort of old white men and and old white women too sort of uh, who are convinced that if they put one foot out into an intersection that all cars must come to a screeching halt right and they scream at you from three blocks away waving at you and then the other group, which you see mostly on Capitol Hill, are young black men who have the exact same attitude of, of although what they'll do is they'll often sort of deliver. They, they seem to get great satisfaction from stopping traffic cold. And, um, and I had it this morning. I have it almost every single morning in DuPont Circle, which is mm-hmm. not a, um, a place that man was meant to drive in. And um, I don't know what. From whence it derives this obsession with it, but anyway, it was just it put me in a bad mood this morning. And... Have, have you come up with a name for them? Because
1: I think for the the ones in your neighborhood, we should consider calling them the White Walkers. <laughs> well,
0: you know, I don't want to I don't want racialize. This. No, it um, but you know, my neighborhood is full of my neighborhood is one of the things that makes my neighborhood infuriating is that it's um. It, there's a stranglehold of 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 old white liberals, um, who. Ruin a lot of Washington and and I've called them for years the coalition against everything right any innovation is bad Any new commerce is bad any new restaurant is bad any new
1: podcast
0: any new podcast is bad It'll be a while before this podcast reaches (laughs) them and uh, So anyway, uh, I'm working on it. I'm gonna try to figure out how to do this more artfully Uh, I'm gonna try to figure out how to do this uh, with more um, you know planned spontaneity and rage uh, I would love to get more and more sort of audio clips from pop culture, you know. Yeah. Um, it'd be weird with some guests to sort of have a constant refrain of, Can you dig it? You know, from The Warriors, um, one of the greatest bad movies of all time. Um, but I like that stuff. I want this thing to be weird. Um, and if I don't enjoy it, then I'm not, I'm going to stop doing it. Um And so anyway, I should get to the the topics of the day. Uh, We have a guest today who is, I don't know how to put this, he's basically nerd royalty in Washington, Uh, Yuval Levin, an old friend of mine, uh, old friend of lots of my friends. He's one of these sort of behind the scenes gurus in Washington that whenever you have an important or complicated political philosophical question, you can bounce ideas off of him. And uh, I, I guess he's the editor of National Affairs, which is a journal that I like a lot. It's sort of the heir to my beloved public interest, which closed down a few years ago. And he is, I gather, both a scholar and the vice president at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. And one of the things I want to talk to him about is uh, Tevi Troy, uh, who's a old another old friend of mine, a guy I uh, got my first job in Washington uh, essentially working for. We always used to, uh, and Tevi's a sweet, brilliant guy. He's worked a lot in different places in government. He's a healthcare expert, and I want him to be HHS secretary, although I think my endorsement is a black mark with the Trump administration. <laughs> and it's weird. I, I, have this, I have this problem of forgetting, you know, like you have inside jokes with people, right? So I've had an inside joke with Tevi. Me and my friends um, used to have this running joke that, um, that his nickname was Tripod because he was yeah. so well endowed. <laughs> and um and uh and I'll say at cocktail parties and stuff, tripod, tripod yeah. and then like people will be like, why'd you call him that? And I was like, Never mind, never mind. Him and Tiger Woods. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh so uh um uh I'm not trying to get cast any aspersions on Tevy. He's a masculine man with four children and all of the rest, but he's he's just also huge in his field. Let's just leave it there. Um <laughs> so we're gonna get uh we're gonna get yuval in here in a second, and uh I would love to get him to loosen up uh He's a brilliant, brilliant guy, but uh be forewarned um I think he wears a tie in the shower uh he's just a he's a he's a very reserved dignified guy, and it's kind of weird that we're friends given how i uh, i'm 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 not um so with that oh and, uh if you like the sound effects, uh we're still working on them, but I got a lot of uh kudos, which was Michael's call. I gather it was the to- photon torpedo sound. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um uh maybe we'll mix it up, maybe we'll keep that. I wanted the um if the thing I mentioned was if you ever seen Lost in Space, it was such a low budget sci-fi yeah. show that they basically just had one sound effect for the entire so, sound effect. Yeah. Every time someone was atomized or beamed out or disappeared or fired a gun, it was basically the same sound effect all the time, except for the um, robot who had a richer palette of sounds. Um,
1: well, let, well, let's do it. this, actually. If, if you're an audience member, you're listening to this, and you have a suggestion for a sound effect, go to iTunes, leave us a review, and tell us what you think the sound effect should be in the comments. We'll take a look through them and review some of the the best answers Next time? Does that
0: sound good? Yeah, that's a good idea. Oh and, oh, and that that reminds me. I gather that it's, like, really important to get good ratings on iTunes, five stars and all that kind of stuff. I would like to say I don't care about any of that kind of stuff, but the suits at, at National Review are leaning on me to make this thing work. Um, and so if you can give it a good review, if you can subscribe through iTunes or Google Play, those are the important places, yeah, right? those are the two big ones. Um, that would be great. Uh, if you can tell a friend about it, that would be great. Um, I'm trying to make this thing a worth everybody's time, and that would help a great deal, and I would be grateful. And if you don't do it, I'll drive out to your house and shoot out your porch light with a BB gun. So there you go. Next up, Yuval. So I have in the studio um, Yuval Levin. It's Levin, right? Yuval yes. Yuval Levin. Okay, because every now and then I pronounce mm-hmm. it wrong. And uh, for people in outside of Washington, who don't know. Uh, Yuval is a strange creature. He, um, first of all, doesn't tweet, which we can talk about, doesn't have much to do with social media in any way, as far as I understand, right? I'm on Facebook to keep up with
2: my nieces
0: and nephews and such, but that's about it. Okay. And um, this is actually a good tutorial for for people who want to know how punditry works. Um, most, you know. Most pundits, most columnists, are not actually experts in anything. Um, and But what we do is we tend to rely on a handful of people who are experts on things. And those are the people we trust. And um, it varies by issue. It varies by topic. And Yuval is one of these guys who is sort of like, a, um, I don't know, if you, if you ever watched The Blacklist, there's this guy... Uh, that James Spader relies on to hunt down people who actually just works at the DMV. And he's this weird, unpresupposing guy, but he's like this incredibly important figure in the entire world of of, of uh, sort of illegal activity. am um, not sure how I feel about where this is going. Yeah, no, I know. But um, uh, Yuval is like the most famous, unfamous person in Washington. Um, he plays he, very much like my one of my sort of heroes, Irving Crystal. Who never did TV? You do TV occasionally. I mm-hmm, interviewed yeah. you on C-SPAN once, mm-hmm. um, but you're a, a behind-the-scenes intellectual more than you are a front man. I think that's fair to say, right? Well, I appreciate that. I'm no Irving Crystal, but uh, you're working on it. The scenes is right. I, 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 do, I seem to recall that Paul Ryan, who we will talk about, I guess, once referred to you as um, our generation's Irving Crystal. So, I'm not alone in making the comparison. That just is a statement on our generation. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like the uh, the uh, best gas station sushi in Alabama. Exactly. It's something, right. you know. As well as um, a building in Topeka. And uh, so anyway, Yuval is one of my, my favorite eggheads. He's uh, There's a debate about whether or not he could actually conceivably be smarter than Ramesh Panuru. No, um, no But, no but way. Gre- greater intellects than mine would have to be the judge. That's the problem. We can't find judges or supercomputers that can figure it out. Um, I would like to see you guys compete on taking the SAT. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, it's great to have you here. I've promised people that I'm going to get you to let your hair down. Ah, the problem is that that's... you have to get that box out of the closet. Exactly. <laughs> what hair? <laughs> um, so, where do you think? Where do you think we are today? I mean, how? On a, on a, are you optimistic, pessimistic, suicidal? Um, well, I I think optimism
2: is silly. Uh, I, I, I would never want to be optimistic. I am hopeful. Um, and the difference is optimism is just expecting good things to happen, and that that's pretty ridiculous. But I think hope is believing that the resources are there for good things to happen. And I think that's very true about America. So I, I'm hopeful about this country. I think it would be crazy not to be. But there's no denying we're in a dark place, uh, especially in our politics, but really in a lot of ways in our culture, and our politics and our culture now are much too intermixed. Um, I think we're in a place where it, it feels like we're in a moment of exhaustion. And especially in politics, both parties, the entire system, a lot of our institutions feel exhausted. They feel like they've spent themselves for a while and have not been replenishing themselves. And I think there's no getting away from that sense. And in some ways, the the Trump presidency is a kind of embodiment of that sense. It's It's like a... It's like a kind of uh, living exhaustion, and it's hard to treat that as uh, as as any cause for joy. So you know we're not in a great situation, but ultimately I am hopeful, and you know I I, I I think America has the resources to revitalize itself, and the challenge for us is to see those, to understand the problems, and to work to turn things around.
0: Right. So uh, you and I both share a um, almost obsessive fondness for called Federalism, Subsidiarity, this idea of pushing as much of politics as possible down to the most local level possible and let people who have an actual connection to the issues deal with them face-to-face on the ground. Um, You wrote a great book about this called Fractured Republic, um, which I've used a lot. Um, The question remains though, how do you do that, right? If our our national institutions, our cultural institutions are, are... uh, depleted, um, You know, I think the last time I looked at the Pew or Gallup surveys on this, there are only like three institutions left that people have a ma- majority of Americans respect, mm-hmm. like military, small businessmen, and on the bubble is police, and everything else is underwater. Clergy, churches, yeah. uh, schools, um, the prescription of what's the problem I... I, I or the description of the problem I'm, I'm totally on board with, how do you actually yeah. restore civil society?
2: Well, so th- this question, and, I, and it's nice that you put it in terms of institutions, which I think is the right term to put it in. This is the the next book I'm starting to work on is on the question of institutions and how Americans think about institutions. It, it seems to me that one of the first things we have to do is understand that what it means to think of our roles in life through the lens of institutions is to think about those roles in terms of obligations in terms of commitments and to see institutions not as platforms for ourselves to display ourselves on but as as molds and channels as as ways of forcing ourselves to take a kind of shape in in public life and associational life that makes us more effective and more able to work together i think we've lost the knack for doing that in american life especially at the national level where everybody treats our institutions as platforms for themselves. That's one way to understand the Trump presidency. It's also a way to understand the Obama presidency. I think it's a way to think about a lot of what has gone wrong in Congress, as members of Congress think of the institution as a way to get themselves more exposure and to uh, and as a platform for themselves. It's also a way to think about what judges who do judging wrong are doing wrong, what Anthony Kennedy is up to. It, all of it is a kind of failure to see that institutions are there to force us to take a kind of shape that can make us more effective. They're supposed to be formative. They're supposed to shape us. And the reason that we need institutions to shape us, I think, is the fundamental conservative truth. It's where conservatism starts from, which is that the human person, as he starts out, is inadequate, is a fallen thing. And in order to turn that raw material into uh, a, a functional citizen in a free society that expects us to use our freedom responsibly, we need institutions, and we need to allow them to form us and shape us. All that's to say that I think the first step that has to be taken is a different way of thinking about what our institutions are for and what life in a free society really is, a kind of intellectual step first and foremost. Beyond that, I do think it means empowering institutions that are working better, thinking about where there is success. We don't have now in American life a kind of sociology of success. We're very good at talking about failure. We're very good at talking about what isn't working, what's disappointing us, what's frustrating us, but we're not very good at talking about where things are working and how things are working. I think we need to be better at looking for those and at empowering them and and look for a politics that makes room for them and that, that allows some authority to flow through them, but none of this is simple. It's not a recipe. It's not a public policy agenda, certainly. Uh, you know, I, I think it, it, it requires a different way of thinking about what it means to be a citizen in a free society, and it would take a big change both for the left and for the right from where we've from where we've
0: come to now. Yeah. So, as, as you know, I've been working tirelessly for a couple of years now on this mammoth book, and I don't want this podcast, at least not yet, to be sort of like Joe Biden's scalp and just nothing but plugs. But <laughs> um, uh, the you know, and as Jack, my research assistant, who's actually sitting in the studio, he's the guy in the leather onesie, um, will test. one of my favorite lines actually comes from Erin Crystal. Um, I've never been able to find it in Hannah Arendt, but he always used to quote Hannah Arendt saying, every generation Western civilization is invaded by barbarians. Yeah. We call them children, right? And so that's why I always thought I, I, the institution that matters the most, obviously, is the family, because it's the one that literally civilizes us from being the natural born barbarians we are into something like presentable human beings to the outside world right <laughs> um and so it seems to me that all all the other institutions are downstream of that and we do a very bad job of to talk about a successful family is instantaneously yeah. judgmental right. right and um uh and it is it is, the the way the left wants to talk about it is um, that family structure, that there, there are many kinds of family structure. No family structure is best. No family structure is better than any other. Um, and the way the right wants to talk about it is this pretty, I mean, with with some intellectuals notwithstanding, like Brad Wilcox is very good on this yep. kind of stuff, but is a sort of judgmental Ozzy and Harriet kind of view. And I don't know that there's any real social space for something in the middle to talk about it. But... I think we should probably be clear about one thing, like, why don't you define institution, right? Yeah. Because if you talk to uh, economists and developmental economists and these guys, they define essentially institutions as just simply rules, mm-hmm. right? But yeah. what we're talking about so, is something a little On different.
2: the one hand, there's a definition of institutions as rules. On the other hand, what you find in political science and in some of sociology, to the extent there is still such a thing as sociology, is something more like organizations. The way I would define institution, institutions are the forms of our social life. That is, they're the ways in which we actually act together. And sometimes that's rules, sometimes that's organizations. But what it always is, is the actual content and form of social life. And form is important because I think what it means to lose our institutions is to be overtaken by a kind of informality. This is part of why I, I, I'm so worried about social media. I think that social media are a set of informality machines. They remove the forms from around our social life, and so they leave us without structure. And In a sense, they're built on a kind of mistaken uh, metaphor about what's wrong with with American social life and associational life, where they think we're too divided, and so we need to just connect people directly, and like, like society is a big open space, and everybody needs to hold hands. But what's actually missing is structure. What we need is not so much ways of connecting individuals as ways of structuring our interactions. The family does that, the the free economy does that, government institutions do that, educational institutions do that, and they each do it in the service of a particular social good and in a way that forms the people in them so that they don't just perform that good, they perform it in a way that makes the people doing it more responsible. So we, we always talk about losing faith in institutions. What does it mean to actually have faith in an institution, right? It's a sort of strange thing. I think we have faith in an institution when we take it to form people to perform a service responsibly. And so, for example, we don't just want the, the bank to keep our money. We want to trust that it will do it responsibly and in a way that we can trust. We want to trust lawyers and doctors. We want to trust the military. We want to trust politicians. And we expect the institutions that they work through to enable us to trust them. We lose faith in institutions when they lose the ability to form people that way, when they're not formative anymore. Sometimes when they just actively fail, when, you know, when a member of the clergy abuses a child, that's an assault on our sense of what the the institution ought to be. But a lot of times now in American life, they they fail even to ask us to trust them. They don't approach their own purpose as building trust. People within the institutions see them not as formative, but as performative, as I say before, as platforms for themselves. And when that's all that the university is, say, is just a place to display your virtue and not a place to be formed into a thinking person, when that's all that Congress is, is just a, a, a place to show yourself off so you can later on get a cable news show, rather than the legislative institution at the center of our constitutional system then it's impossible to trust them we don 't trust them because they 're not asking to be trusted. I think you see that now in our political institutions you see it in journalism you see it in the professions and it leads to a loss of trust because ultimately we have a set of institutions that are not even asking to be trusted
0: so it 's funny I, I kind of I mean I agree with all of that but I kind of also see it as a slightly different from different perspective I think um, how to put this the The role that institutions play is, one of the things I truly believe, and we can argue about it or debate it, but um, is that the essence of modernity, right? The essence of capitalism, liberal democracy, the why it all works, is the triumph of the division of labor, Mm -hmm. not just in economic form, but uh, in mental form. Uh, We're all hardwired to want to have a unity of vision where our sort of religious, secular, familial, political, economic um, roles are all fused into one sort of tribal vision. This is what Friedrich Hayek talks about in terms of how we're wired to live in a microcosm. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of the extended order is that it's a macrocosm of a contract society and whatnot. And so uh, the reason why I think one of the most important roles that institutions play is that they are different sources of meaning, right? We are... Human beings, more than anything else, we crave meaning for a, a place to, other than maybe food and oxygen, right, um, uh, of uh, an attachment that gives us a sense of earned success, a sense of belonging, a, certain, a sense of who our identity is. And the problem is, is that when you lose institutions, and you lose that role, that formative role that you're talking about, um, you know, it's, it's what Robert Nisbet used to talk about, the quest for community, right? Right. Mm-hmm. You, you, In the same way you don't lose your sense of hunger or your sense of eyesight, um, you don't lose your instinctual desire for a sense of community, and you start looking elsewhere for it. And I think one of the secrets of the Democrats' success for a very long time is that they're better at selling people on the idea that they can get meaning from the federal government. I think it's fool's gold. It's not true. It doesn't work. But the Life of Julia stuff, all of that, and – was very compelling for a lot of people. It's why the Democratic Convention in 2012 began with the phrase, the government is the one thing you can belong to. Right. Right. For, and for people like you and me, that, you know, that makes you feel profoundly unsafe. But for people who are dying for a sense of connectedness to something, um, it's, it's deeply seductive. And I think that was one of the secrets of Donald Trump's success is, is that he was ratifying not just the frustrations of a lot of people, but he was giving them a sense of belonging to some cause. And I think whenever the federal government gets in the business of providing an excess of meaning for people, we're going down a bad place. And what you want is people to derive their meaning from their family, their faith, their local communities, baseball clubs, all of that. And when those things don't provide a sense of meaning and and a sense that you need to have make some level of sacrifice for the good of those institutions, which is a part of that formative right. thing. Um, then they do become platforms for people to sort of indulge self-expression, or they cause people to sort of look elsewhere to find these sources of meaning, which, like, look, Facebook just doesn't work as a great yeah. source of community, right? A virtual community is just a pallid substitute for an actual community. Um, and that's why you get the nationalization of politics, mm-hmm. this sort of sort of ecstatic schadenfreude of... if our success depends on your pain and suffering right your tears are delicious politics and I just don't know how to unravel that yeah Um. yeah
2: and I I think another way to put it is we have to think about institutions in the plural there better be more than one because ultimately if there is nothing between the individual and the whole then the whole is the only source of meaning and that leads to a politics that is very unhealthy and as you say in a sense Classical liberalism exists to avoid that outcome. And part of what you see when institutions fail in society is a, is a kind of return to that way of thinking about politics. I think the last election was a, was a contest between two ways of thinking about how to be unified. It was a very divisive debate between two forms of unity. And both of them were, in a sense, nationalistic. They were nationalistic in different ways, but they both were speaking to the fact that they are not enough ways of finding meaning and finding solidarity and finding unity between the individual and the state. And they offered a kind of sort of right-wing and sort of left-wing version of how the state can provide us with that sort of unity or this, the community as a whole or the nation as a whole. And, you know, n- neither of them is quite crazy, but they, they both are symptoms of a problem. They're not solutions to that problem. And I think the, the, the problem, one, one way to understand the nature of that problem is as a failure of institutions to do their proper job. And that really is one way to describe our condition now. If we think about what the problems are to be addressed, um, that's one important
0: place to start. Right, let's change gears a little bit. Since you brought up the, the term nationalism, um, as you know, um, there is a uh, – I wouldn't say – fierce or intense. These are all friends of mine. Um but there is a there's a robust debate within the pages of and the screens of National Review yeah. about nationalism versus patriotism, right? And my uh, colleague Ramesh Panuru and um and Rich mm-hmm. Lowry, they wrote a big cover story a couple months ago called For Love of Country, um talking about benign nationalism and how na and, and in fairness, I criticize them for it, but in fairness uh, National Review with John O'Sullivan, some others, has been talking about yeah. cultivating a healthy form of nationalism for 30 years, and so it wasn't necessarily just lending aid and comfort to the MAGA, America First nationalism, it's something else, uh, but I criticized them for it in that context, um, but I'm also decidedly on the uh, patriotism and nationalism in the American context are different things. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, we should be talking about extolling patriotism, which is a creedal thing that's attached to certain ideals, while nationalism, particularly generic nationalism, um, um, is not. And anyway, where do you come down on all that? Well, it it seems to me
2: that it's important to see the ways in which this is more than a distinction of terminology um, and to think about really what the differences are. I think we're very fortunate as Americans to live in a country where the love of our own is also the love of the good, Uh, where we we are a creedal nation, but we are a nation. And in a sense, it makes it hard to draw this hard distinction between believing in the idea of America and loving this country because it's our country and it's people because there are people. I think both of these things are necessary and both of them are valuable. And in some ways, that's what, what Rich and Ramesh were trying to get at, it seems to me, we we can't though discount the dark sides of nationalism and what it brings with it, and you know the 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 reasons why it tends to be embodied by shady characters and people who make us uneasy. Uh, there are there are reasons for that. I mean nationalism often I, it defines itself against something, and that something is in some ways a part of the American creed. And so there is something about America that resists nationalism, but. I think we've got to be careful not to treat our country as an abstraction. Uh, America is not just an idea. America really is a society, a society with a common memory that now runs longer than the memory of many other nations of the world. We share a lot in common. It means something that someone else is an American. And what it means is not just a common commitment to the principles of the Declaration of Independence. It also means a common experience. It also means a common belonging. And... You know, I think our politics has to find a way to make sense of both of these things and to let each temper the other a little bit, to allow something like nationalism to temper the inclination we have to abstract away from national life and to abstract away from people's actual problems and actual worries. I think you see this all the time in the immigration debate where people just want to say, well, look, the idea of America is we let people in. In fact, we've got to be able to say there are costs, and we've got to think about the costs and have an immigration policy that takes the costs seriously, and that's not un-American. And so I think you have to let the the kind of creedal idea of the country be tempered some by the f- the actual physical human reality of the country and its people. But at the same time, you've got to let the dark side of nationalism be tempered by the American creed. And the American creed is universalist in a sense. It is about what human beings are. It is about a belief in freedom and inequality. And a nationalism that's shaped by that or tempered by that uh, has the potential to be uh, a, a, a potent force for good. So I, I'm i not sure if that puts me on Richard Ramesh's side or somewhere between uh, you and them, but I think we shouldn't be afraid of having an American nationalism that is distinctly American. And in that sense not as dangerous as other kinds of nationalism. America's always been very lucky to have Europe's problems in much smaller portions. And we've always worried that we're headed to Europe, we're going to become Europe. I mean, this has been part of American political discourse since before the, before independence. Um, and, you know, they had the French Revolution, we had the American Revolution. Ours was better. Ours was much better, right? I mean, they they had a turn to industrial capitalism that was much darker and worse than ours. Uh, they had a response to it in, in socialism and communism that was much worse than progressivism, uh, our response to it. They're now going through a kind of demographic disaster that is looking much worse than the smaller version of it that we're going through. Americans are lucky. We're lucky to begin with just by being Americans. And I do think it's possible for us to have a, a, a patriotic American nationalism that doesn't have all the dark sides of European nationalism, but that can only work if we're alert to those dark sides, if we're conscious about it, and thinking about it.
0: Yeah, I don't disagree necessarily with any of that. Um, my problem with the benign nationalism that 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 Rich and Ramesh put forward, um, you know, and one day maybe I'll actually have them on this podcast to talk to them about it. I'm just not sure, uh, you know. National Review has a podcast called The Editors, which uh-huh. I've never been on, nor have I been asked on, so we'll see. Um, um, but my problem with the benign nationalism is that all the work is being done by the word benign. Yeah. Right? Uh, who's afraid of benign cancer, right? I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> benign is the, doing the heavy lifting there. And, uh, to me, the, the, I agree with you. Look, I, I think it is, it is absolute folly to, um, Say that if you believe in patriotism you don't- instead of nationalism that you don't believe in the nation right right I mean uh this is a nation uh you know uh, the whole idea of nationalism comes out of romanticism in the early eighteen hundreds. It is a rebellion against uh uh sort of not just uh, altar and throne but really against the enlightenment as well and particularly in Germany where it's a rebellion against the Napoleonic imposed technocracy on people. But the nation is a thing that's been around for a good long time and patriots believe... Patriotic people in American context believe in the the, the, the sovereignty of the nation. That doesn't... Just because you reject nationalism doesn't make you a globalist. Right. Um, but it seems to me that we were better at talking about American exceptionalism a while ago. You know, it has now become yep. such a loaded phrase. Um, And in part because of the way Obama talked about it, um, in part because of the way Donald Trump has talked about it. Donald Trump doesn't like it either. And those two ways, by the way, are not as different
2: from each other as you might imagine. I mean, Trump's kind of nationalism is not a form of American exceptionalism. In fact, it's just the opposite. His argument essentially is, our leaders should put our country first the way every other country's leaders do. If you look at at his inaugural, which is a, a kind of interesting speech. The, the argument he really makes is that america should be like every other country right right now that that's, that's that to me is not an
0: american kind of nationalism. it's 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 a, it's a it's a it's a weirdly dark view which says that every country is simply interested in pursuing its own um raw self-interest defined in his terms essentially as industrial self-interest right mercantilism right? yeah and he um uh you know he thinks any normal country would when it invaded another country would take the order, right, right? And so Obama would disagree with taking the oil part, but... uh, Yeah, but the idea that, well, the Greeks have Greek exceptionalism
2: and Americans have American exceptionalism, that I think is common to Trump and Obama. But if you go back and you look
0: at who the the intellectual authors of the idea of American exceptionalism are, right? You know, whether you want to say it's Werner Sombart or you want to say it's Seymour Martin Lipset, it never meant American jingoism. It never meant American nationalism, right? It meant that there was something... Just weird, right? I mean, it's like uh, it's like Bill Murray and Stripes. We're not Watousies, you know. <laughs> we were kicked out of every decent country in the world, and we're mutts. And there was something weird about us. And you know, Marty Lipset, who I, I knew a little bit, he used to love te- telling the story about um, how in Canada and the United States, this is one of the great social science experiments of all time. Everyone likes to do North Korea versus South Korea mm-hmm. and East Germany, West, West Germany. And he says, well, look, at the time of the founding, if you were a loyalist or a royalist, you either stayed in Canada or you moved up there. If you had your, you know, as Tommy Lee Jones says in Firebirds, if you had your head and your heart wired together for some full tilt boogie for freedom and justice, you either moved to the 13 colonies or you stayed there, right? And you fought the crown. Same ethnic composition, same DNA, right? Same cultural institutions, largely, right? Same language. This is this great natural experiment. You fast forward to the 1970s and around the exact same time, Marty always liked to point out that um, both governments said, we're going to switch to the metric system. In Canada, it's all, f- you know, if you want to go to Tim Hortons, you got to go in kilometers, right? It's all that, you know, that centimeter witchcraft stuff that none of us understand. And America said, we're not doing that, you know, and because we don't, there's something inherent about America that is not just simply a white person thing. It's an American culture thing that is not deferential to authority like that, and that we don't ask a sort of buy your leave from the centralized government. And that to me was always a big part of what American exceptionalism was. And um, it seems to me that nationalism, any conception of nationalism, runs counter to that, right? Nationalism by any, any, almost any definition of nationalism, the significant moral and political entity is the group. Right? right, They always claim, like populists always claim to represent all the people, yep. nationalists always claim to represent the whole nation. They never do. They only re- represent one segment of it. And in the American exceptionalism, patriotism scheme, the fundamental political and moral unit of politics is the individual, right? The hero in the American story is always the man who stands up to the mob, not the mob itself. And the problem with the rhetoric of nationalism is that it elevates and glorifies the, mobs in, the mob in ways that I do not like. Yeah. And I always, I've always argued, and Jack can test because he's sick of hearing me say it, that nationalism, a little nationalism is healthy, right? You need some sort of bond to hold us together, create social solidarity, a conception of the, who we are as a, as a nation. Um, but all poisons are determined by the dose, Right so my favorite holiday is actually Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. which is the most nationalist holiday we have, right? It predates the founding of the country. It has nothing yeah. to do with the Constitution. It has nothing to do with our politics. It's essentially thankful to God for the soil, right, and the providence of being able to live here and how good we have it. And there are no gifts given. There's nothing – there's no merchandising to it or very little. The best stuff is basically d- drawn by your kids with you an outline of their mm-hmm. hand and they make it into a turkey. And I love that stuff. Um, but when you start trying to come up with political notions of nationalism, they have to be exclusionary, and they and the internal logic of nationalism has no limiting principle other than patriot, American patriotism, the yeah. creedal stuff, right. right?
2: I think that's right. But we're also we're we're in a we're in a moment now when the idea of nationalism is especially confused, because nationalism can be both a you can think of nationalism in opposition to localism as say teddy roosevelt did that's what he meant by the new nationalism is a centralization you can think of nationalism in opposition to globalism as as i think most people use it now on the right tend to think so that nationalism can be both a form of particularism and a form of universalism and in fact it is actually both of those things it it looks for a kind of middle ground between them but we emphasize different different facets of that at different times i think we are in a moment when what most people mean by nationalism is not globalism um, and in that sense it's the kind of first step in the direction of an individualism and i think that can be healthy it can be healthy but it isn't by itself healthy and it it can never be separated as you say from the sense that we are defined by the larger group by the larger whole most fundamentally Obviously, we are defined by the larger group. There's no getting around that. The question is, where does it start? Where does it begin from? And for Americans, it's always started from individualism. This has enormous upsides. It also has some downsides. I mean, it is why we are resistant to thinking about institutions, for example. and it's why we're so violent. Often. I mean,
0: Marty Lipset yeah. said explicitly it's a double-edged sword. Absolutely. There are a lot of bad things that come. This, this thing where we started, we we're talking about self-expression and platforms. Right. You know, I think it was James Q. Wilson who said the history of the Enlightenment is basically this tension between self-discipline and Mm self-expression. And America has a lot of both, right? And though self-discipline seems to be shrinking and self-expression because Facebook and Twitter and everything else seems to matter more. But that's part of the America. I've never, I mean, I love America for what it is and I love American exceptionalism because I'm willing to take the trade-offs. But I've never seen American exceptionalism as discussed by people who actually know what they're talking about to mean sort of the Chestertonian, you know, my country drunk or sober stuff, right? That's not what it really means. Exactly.
2: No, I think that's absolutely right. And and that's the sense in which we have to temper our nationalism by actual Americanism, which isn't fundamentally nationalism. And look, this debate gets out of control very quickly. I mean, the fact is, the, the debate as it's happened, and especially because it's been driven in part by the Trump phenomenon. I mean, at some level, this has been imposed on Trump, mm-hmm. uh, like almost everything else about what we think of as Trumpism. It didn't really start with him. I mean, the, his identification with America first literally happened in the course of an interview with a New York Times reporter. Who said something like, "Oh, do you mean America first? And Trump says, "Yeah, I like right. that." He, he never heard the phrase. Before. Right. Yeah. He, he didn't mean what it meant to this reporter or to most other people in the country. But uh, uh, you know, w- we find ourselves in a place where this the, the idea of nationalism has come from a uh, has, has come from a kind of populist energy and from a debate about globalism that itself, I think, is way too abstract and disconnected okay. from anything in particular. Um, and so, you know, it's it's inherently confusing, but I do think it's important to avoid the pure America is an idea line of argument, mm-hmm. which does sound to a lot of people in the country like you're saying, well, ultimately, we're working in the service of this abstract principle, and that means whatever, you know, that means open borders, that means right. trade without concern agree. for I, you, that just can't be
0: what we actually mean, and I don't think it's what many people do mean. I I agree with that entirely. But since we've gotten pretty abstract, we don't have that much more time, uh, let's do a little rank punditry. Um, First of all, I think it's fair to say that you're close or have been close to Speaker Ryan in the past. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe currently, you know, whatever. Uh, Uh, Who knows? Who knows? (laughs) Um, uh, Did you happen to see any of his interview with with Sean Hannity about, about... Trump And
2: I, I saw some of that. I saw the, the, the pieces of it that ended up getting sent around. I
0: haven't seen the whole thing. What was your uh, impression of all of that?
2: Look, I, I think that um, I think Ryan finds himself in an extremely difficult situation where he has to find some balance between serving the interests of the institution that he runs and the members of it um, and advancing something like his vision, which I think is very different from Trump's. Um, I, I do think he goes too far in defending Trump and in advancing the case that, well, his heart's in the right place and he's really trying to achieve what I'm trying to achieve. I, I think something more like even Mitch McConnell's approach to this, which is just to say, this thing's happening, what can we do about it, let's try to make the most of it, is 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 closer to the way I think about this. Um Ryan's found himself in a very challenging situation. I don't know how any of us would handle it, but uh, I certainly have my criticisms of how he's chosen to handle it. Um
0: we are both friends with uh a, a titan in his field, a giant um among men, uh Tevi Troy. Uh-huh. Uh for listeners who don't know, my f- when I first came to the American Enterprise Institute where we're recording this right now, uh in the very early nineteen nineties, I got a I interviewed for a job to work for a guy named guy named Ben Wattenberg, and one day I'll tell you stories about him. And um he had a young scrappy research assistant named Tevi Troy who was heading off to graduate school. And um I agreed to be an intern in training for uh the research assistant job. Um and I worked with Tevy and I so literally I think Tevi's my oldest friend in Washington. Mm. And um he is a uh he's a mensch um you worked for him at the white house i did
2: yeah he was my immediate boss at the white house so he was the president's deputy domestic policy advisor when i was there um and really was a kind of mentor in a lot of ways and has remained a a good friend since then after the white house Tevi was deputy secretary of hhs for a couple of
0: years and um, which brings us to the the pressing issue of this 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 prairie fire we're trying to light <laughs> in the country to get Tevi to replace Tom Price as HHS secretary. Yeah, I think we've persuaded up to three people that this is a good idea. <laughs> oh, I think it's in low double digits at this point. Ah, well, um, and, uh, uh, you know, as you said, optimism is foolhardy, but hope springs yes. eternal. Yeah, we should hope
2: that someone like Tevi and especially hope that Tevi... Uh, could become secretary
0: of HHS. It may be too much to hope for, but I think he'd be great. I figured we should just check that box, you know. Um, And uh, what do you think is going to actually happen in, say, the 2018 midterms and all that stuff?
2: I have no idea. I've I've never been a big fan of, of making election predictions, and this last election especially cured me of any desire to make them. Um, You know, I I think you'd have to say that um, the the greatest good fortune the Republican Party has is the Democratic Party and vice versa. And this will be a contest to see who turns off more people and helps the other one win. Do you think tax reform in any serious shape gets passed? Yeah, I think something gets passed. I think what gets passed will be less ambitious than what they're trying to do here. I think getting rid of the state and local tax deduction is going to be practically impossible, and if they don't do that, then they'll have to have a much smaller uh, set of tax cuts and reforms, but I think something will pass next year.
0: Um, So, this is the second uh, Remnant podcast, and in the first one, I asked Ben Sasse- I learned a lot from that first
2: one about the games they play in Nebraska with P.
0: Yes, (laughs) yes, well- I'm a better man for knowing. I got this advice that you should always come away with a podcast with one key takeaway. Yes. I think for a lot of people... Right. Uh, avoid filling... the cornfields. I was going to avoid them already, but now there's really... <laughs> um, I always knew there was a reason why the children of the corn smelled funny. Um, but one of the things I asked them was, what is like the weirdest thing about being a senator? Right? Mm-hmm. You're a think tank guy. You work... Um, despite my pleadings for you to come to the American Enterprise Institute... You work at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, uh, a a uh, widely respected, though shabby by comparison, <laughs> think tank <laughs> with chickens running around the hallway and um, – Uh, you know, in blinking fluorescent lights rather than this palace that we have here at AEI? I'm just a simple think tanker. This is all too much for me. (laughs) So uh, what would you say, if if someone said, you know, what was one of the weirdest things you learned from your time being in Washington, either working at the White House or in think tank world or whatever? Yeah.
2: Well, I would say uh, working in Washington, especially in government, but also out of it, has totally cured me of any ability to ever believe in conspiracy theories. I think the the most important thing to know about Washington is that nobody knows what they're doing. And that that's weird in the sense that you always want to – when you follow politics, you read stories in the form of narratives of this is the plan and that's what's happening. And, you know, when I was – when I worked for Newt Gingrich, uh, I was 21, during the the impeachment of Bill Clinton – I would write into work on the Metro and would read about all the plans that Republican leaders have and how they're going to do this and then that. And I'd get to the office and it was just like people running around screaming, what the <laughs> hell is going to happen next? No one knew where this was going at any point. Um, and really, it, in a less intense way, that's what things are like all the time. Um, and so I, I, I've lost the ability to believe that anybody's thinking 10 steps ahead and, uh, and, and has got, got this thing in the bag. And whether that's the President or Congress or Russia or whoever, that's really not what's going on. Uh and I I think you you get smarter about watching politics when you come to the realization that it's it's not house of cards. It's maybe it's not quite VEEP, though these right. days it sort of is, um, but it's definitely not house of cards. It's it's funny you bring this up because
0: this I make a very similar point often. Um, um I had this epiphany. I was asked to come speak at a the big Koch brothers donor conference, uh-huh. right? It was about five six years ago, and I had been reading about how this is the the nerve center of the James Bond villain <laughs> conspiracy, the the heart of the octopus, right? And it's where um, the string pullers, of the Republican Party, hatch their schemes for how they're going to destroy public schools and poison drinking water or whatever. And obviously, the whole thing's off the record, but I don't think I'm getting any. I'm I'll get any trouble for this. And so I get there, and I just like literally on the flight out read this piece of the New York Times about how this is, the, you know, this is the the the, the pentavert where all the where they make that where they put the chemical in Kentucky Fried Chicken to make you crave it for it nightly, and I get there, and yeah, the people there are richer than at some CPAC thing or YAF conference or whatever, but they're all complaining about how they have no influence yeah. and it dawned on me after listening to them, you know, the political consultants all think if they could just be in charge, everything would work. The politicians think if they just didn't have to answer the voters or the donors, everything would work. And it turns out there's no red rope, right? There's no red rope that we walk past it, you get to the decision makers, right? Everybody um, is trying to figure out who the guy or gal making the decision is, and there isn't one. Yeah. And for me, that's actually really reassuring. That's, a, that's a cause for, if not hope, then a little cheer, because it's proof that it is a democracy, yeah. right?
2: And it's proof against a certain kind of cynicism, right? It's not really true that the system is rigged for the advantage of this person or that person. The system isn't rigged. The system is just a mess. Right. And that's better than a system that's rigged to, to benefit people who aren't you, so that I I do think seeing how it actually works actually makes you less cynical, though not in the kind of technocratic earnest way of just it really works and we're all here to to make the machine run. It's politics. It's actually politics. And politics is about interests, and politics is about money, and politics also is about ideas and is about ideals and is about people trying to, uh, to improve things. All those things are true at the same time. And so... I, you know, I I think that that's an answer to cynicism that also prevents us from falling into a kind of, uh, you know, in in into a kind of hopeless earnestness about politics, and that middle ground is about where you want to be. Uh, it's not where a lot of Americans are about politics, but you know, I do think that's one thing you can learn from actually seeing it happen. Yeah.
0: Well, Yuval, thank you for coming. Um, you. I hope it wasn't too miserable for you. And uh, Our front. maybe the next time I'll explain to you why I, I think in some sense the system is rigged, but not through any conscious effort so much as sort of a um, uh, the way class interests manifest themselves among the globalist 1%. Uh-huh. That's a conversation for another time. I can't wait. <laughs> All right. Thanks for coming, man. Thanks a lot. All right, so Elvis has left the building. If by Elvis you mean a short, nebbishy, super genius Jewish intellectual by the name of you all Levin. Uh, I want to thank him for coming. I want to thank you for listening. Again, please tell your friends and enemies to subscribe. Give it a good rating on iTunes. And uh, if you have any extra cash, just send it to me, uh, Care of National Review. That would be great, too. Tune in next week where we'll do something else different. Thanks.